Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpin' Radio. This week kicks off our Best of the Year specials, and in this first program, we represent the best conversations and performances from the spring and summer of 2019. We'll be back with all new shows on January 10th. Happy holidays from all of us at Lumpin' Radio to all of you. I-94 spoke with award-winning author Alex Kotlowitz in front of a sold-out audience at The Dial. Kotlowitz discussed his forthcoming book, An American Summer, discussed the plague of violence in Chicago's neighborhoods, and what, if anything, can be done to stop it. I-94, Lumpin' Radio's books and literature show, airs every Sunday at 11 a.m. We are joined, very happy to have him here, Mr. Alex Kotlowitz. Thank you so much for joining us. Give him a big hand. you guys don't know who Mr. Kotlowitz is, he is an award-winning author. He's won awards across all kinds of media, in fact. I believe TV, radio, film, probably collecting, something like that as well. Uh, and you started out, of course, as a journalist here with the Wall Street Journal. Uh, like myself, actually, you started out with a free newspaper in Michigan, I believe, as well. That's right, yeah, a small alternative newspaper. It was called The Lansing Star, though right before I got there, it was published by some former students from Michigan State, and it was called uh-huh. The Joint Issue, and they wanted uh-huh. to go legit, so... So they should uh, get the drop-the-weed references. So that, yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> they, good. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> so uh, you may know Mr. Kolowitz because he wrote a book, uh, whoa, it's got to be coming 25 years 20, ago. 28 years ago. 20 years ago, years ago years called yeah, yeah. There Are No Children Here. Now, that is a... Uh, I, I'm not exaggerating when I say that's a canonical book, both in... Um, social reportage and in the history of Chicago because it was uh, focused on a family and a group of children who grew up in the projects here. I wanted to ask you, Alex, just to start off with, did you look at this volume as kind of a thematic follow-up to There Are No Children Here? And uh, you know, just to add on to that, why did you revisit, in a sense, a story that you may have told before? Right. So, yeah, I guess I sort of see this as a, I don't know, but as a kind of bookend to There Are No Children Here. You know, There Are No Children Here was, you know, as you said, 28 years ago, and it was, a, you know, about these two boys in the projects. And, I mean, as you alluded to, much of the story of their life, of course, revolved around all the violence in that community. And I will tell you the thing for me that's one of the things that's been really distressing is the stubborn persistence of the violence in this city. And I felt that while the book, that book addressed it, it didn't really get to what I wanted to get at in this book, which is sort of how the violence really gets in your bones, you know, how it comes to, to shape who you are and how you work so forcefully to keep it from defining you. That's it. And I want to, before we go into that, because I think there are some specific moments in the book where you really delve into that topic with a number of people who do surprising things. I'm thinking uh, in one case of a mother who gives some unusual testimony after her, uh, her son's involved in a shooting. Um, what is it about this city, do you think, that has such a problem with violence in pockets of this city? Yeah. It's not a widespread problem. It's in certain areas of this city. Why does that persist in this area? All right. Well, a couple of things. I mean, one is as bad as it is in Chicago, and we, for whatever reason, has become kind of the poster child for urban violence. I mean, we're not even in the top ten worst cities in this country. I could have written this book in Baltimore, Philadelphia, New the Orleans, Milwaukee. Detroit. Yeah, absolutely. You yeah. name it. So, but but the thing about Chicago is because of our size, the numbers are considerably larger than anywhere else. And for whatever for reasons I don't fully understand, we've been the epicenter of these really horrible murders around children yeah. um, or involving children. So, um, but you're right that the the violence is really contained to a, a reasonably small part of the city. And and I think the kind of commonality in all these neighborhoods is these are neighborhoods that are deeply 
distressed and deeply neglected and deeply isolated from the rest of the city. And that's not unlike other cities as well. I mean, it just speaks to the great inequity and the segregation that still persists in this country. Uh, we, do, we do have, have one last form to follow up. Uh, we do have a lot of segregation in this city, but I kind of want to expand on that for a second because there are other areas of this city that are 30% white, 30% Latino, and 30% black in the classic kind of Chicago political sense. Not a lot, though. <laughs> Not a lot, but that we don't have, in, in areas that still are very segregated, we don't have that violence in them. Is there something specific about an Englewood or an Austin that makes it so much more prone to that violence than a neighborhood that might be right next to it that doesn't have that. Well, except that I think you find that most of the, the, the violence happens in all these neighborhoods that are just really struggling, where the sort of, I mean, I guess I, the, um, the, the story I always think about a number of years ago, there was a guy, Paul Collier, who wrote uh, The Bottom Billion, which is this actually, he used to work at the World Bank, but it's this book about the developing world and about how there's this cycle of violence in, in developing countries where there's this great inequity, where in places like Chad, for example, where everybody's poor, there's not a lot of violence, but it's where there's a real divide between the rich and the poor. And he comes to Chicago, and I met him during his visit, and he spent some time down the south side, and he said, this is just what I'm writing about. He says, you walk out of your door in Englewood and you look at the gleaming downtown skyline, I think one of the most beautiful downtowns in the world, and you know what's not yours. And so you can't help but feel resentful. You can't help but feel that there's not much ahead of you. Um, and so, yeah, these are communities. I think the commonalities of these are communities that are just, as I said, just deeply distressed. Was that, was that something you, you intended? Did you try to look into to the root cause of all yeah. this stuff? So um, I got to say, you're right. I mean, I, I'm really up front in the beginning of the book. It's not a book about public policy or prescriptions. And it's in part because um, it's not my bailiwick. It's not my forte. Uh, and, um, and the other thing is, truly, we don't know what works and what doesn't work. Well, yeah, I mean, you say in the book yeah. the, the 2016 uh, Crime Lab report from the University of Chicago they threw their hands up. They didn't know, yeah. you know, and I really admire those guys. And they, you know, and I also admire the fact that they were open about this. But, you know, in 2016, the numbers just exploded and they issued a report saying we, we don't know what happened, you know. But, um, but, you know, for me, I just, I guess I, um, I mean, I'm a storyteller. It's what I love to do. Um, it's probably the only thing I'm still good at, maybe basketball, but that's, you know, I, I'll let Challenge. <laughs> but, uh, I, but I just want to say, that, you know, we tell stories, though, not to, we tell stories to ask questions, not to answer them. And so that's why I tell stories. It was the same with There Are No Children Here. There was no attempt in that book to offer any prescriptions or to deal with public policy. Um, and, you know, my ambitions are, are somewhat modest. As you know, I guess I hope that, you know, uh, that you tell stories and it upends what people think they knew and challenges uh, their assumptions and just gets them to think about the world and themselves just a little bit differently. You know, if it does more than that, I feel pretty damn fortunate. Were there were there a lot of stories you had to leave out? I mean, you did a ton of yeah interviews. yeah yeah. There were some stories I had to leave out. There was one story in particular I really 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 wanted to write for the book, and I couldn't get the main subject of that story to cooperate. And, and I and can you I talk about it at all. Or? Um, can I talk about it? Yeah. Um, Maybe in broad strokes. Yeah, in broad strokes, I can. So it's a story about. I, yeah, I won't get into the details. But it was a story about a security guard and a off-duty police officer who got into a tussle with 
somebody who had been drinking, and um, and the upshot is that the the um, the person who had been drinking got very aggressive, and they ended up killing him. Um, and I wanted to tell the story um, of the security guard, who it turns out was a, a, a Black Lives Matter activist, and she did this on her part time. But I I understand. I mean, it had to be really hard for her. Um, um, so that was a story I really wanted to tell, but couldn't get her to sit down with me. What resonated uh, a lot for me was the, um, it was a very uh, insightful look at trauma, mm -hmm. uh, I think. And, um, and as you know, there are, there was no solutions. I mean, it's not a book like how do we figure out the violence? Nobody knows how to, you know, how to figure out the violence in Chicago. Did want to mention uh, my friend Kristen over here that works for a, a group where they, uh, they work with, it's called Chicago Reach, correct? Chicago Ready, yeah. Chicago Ready. Right. And they work with uh, people that are, um, you know, very likely to become offenders, and they do jobs programs and then uh, therapy. And um, I actually saw the dean of Harvard Medical School speak about uh, trauma as a right. public health, right. you know, and, right. and a lot of politicians talk about it, uh, the good ones anyway. And... Um, you know, I, I think that's one of the things, you know, um, I'm a veteran, you know, and I saw things that nobody should see. And now, you know, you got these kids that get shot, they stick a Band-Aid on them, send them home, you know, and, and this, I, I think these are things that, uh, for me, that was the main um, thesis of the book. I was like, people are traumatized and they need help. Well, actually, interestingly enough, the, the guy who founded Chicago Ready is actually in the book, Eddie Bocanegra, um, whose story for me is just a remarkable one. I mean, he's an extraordinary individual, but, you know, he, at the age of 18, was running with a Latin gang, and a friend of his was shot and paralyzed. And so Eddie, in an act of vengeance, uh, shoots and kills a rival gang member and ends up serving 14 years in prison. And his story is very much a story about forgiveness, about asking, about trying to find a way to forgive himself for what he's done. But when Eddie's in prison, his brothers, who both served in Iraq and Afghanistan, come home, and one of them is, is deeply traumatized by his experience and is telling Eddie about it. And Eddie's thinking to himself, that's me. That's what I've been through. And so Eddie started this remarkable program, Chicago Ready, where they're you know, not only providing jobs for young people, but also uh, putting them in, giving them cognitive behavioral therapy, trying to get them to be more self-aware about the trauma they've experienced. I wanted to expand a little bit on that because there's a, a passage, a story in the book about a, a student at a school who repeatedly keeps undergoing right. trauma after trauma. People are getting shot, people are getting killed. Um, there's domestic violence. He, it seems to some of the people who are supposed to be the support people at the school that he is simply unfeeling, and that's right. completely untrue. And you, you reference this sense that people are numb to the violence a number of times, and that's, that's not true. Right. Is this Thomas? Yeah, and one of, the, one of the most, for me, compelling things that I had not really considered was you tell the story of one of the social workers who was working with him who started having the symptoms of post-traumatic stress right. from dealing with some of these kids who right. were going home after seeing their friends shot. And I, I think that's kind of an unexamined, um, until reading this book, that was kind of an unexamined part of the toll that the violence in the city is taking is on the social workers and on the educators who frequently are the only people that, that mm -hmm. interact with these children. Right. No, they call it secondary or vicarious trauma, this sort of where you're not 
where you're impacted by the trauma because of the stories that you hear. And so, yeah, I mean, the story about Thomas you mentioned, you know, he was really, really kind of surly in high school, easy to add anger. And so there were people in the school who thought, well, this is just a, you know, uncooperative kid. But Anita, who had experienced her own trauma in her life, she saw some of herself in Thomas. And it's a story about this beautiful relationship between the two of them that continues well beyond their time, well, in, his there, time in high school. There's a, there's a chapter, its own story, about uh, a reporter right. who, who's affected in that way. Right, Pete right. Nikias, right. He, right uh, I mean, he bas his job was basically to tweet around the clock on the city's <clears throat> gun violence. Yeah, and Pete's out there, you know, he's out there going from murder to murder, and, um, and he's a kind of tough guy, you know, he sort of reminds me a little bit of a, you could mistake him for a cop, um, but it begins to really get at him. Um, it begins to, you know, he's beginning to realize he's seen things that he can't get out of his head, that yeah, he, there's a moment when he gets to a scene early and he's there before the police and the ambulance and he's got to administer first aid and he realizes, I'm not, I'm not beating them to the scene anymore. Um, right. uh, he starts to drink. Yeah, he's a, um, he's a really, uh, his work is, is also remarkable. Um, his work he did for the Tribune, he's now on a Neiman at Harvard, but yeah, he's a... Um, what about you? Uh, yeah, I, you know, I hesitate to talk about it in some ways because it feels um, in some ways so minimal to what the people in, that I spent time with went through. But there was a period when I was, uh, when I sat down to write the book um, that I went in, I never, never experienced anything, just a kind of really deep depression where I couldn't feel, I didn't feel any joy, I couldn't smile. And, um, and it took a while to come out of it. And, you know, I went into therapy, and, and there's no question looking back on it that it was this kind of secondary or vicarious trauma. I also had the catharsis of being able to sit down and tell these stories. Betty Heredia was visited by Chicago legends The Chandeliers. This excerpt of their performance was recorded live in Studio B.
John Daly chatted with Ken Hyde, a leading maker of tabletop role-playing games. Hyde discussed the origins of role-playing games, why he thinks they are one of the most vital art forms today, and how any game can be made better by adding magical elves. Radio Free Bridgeport with John Daly airs every Tuesday, drive time. Kenneth Hyde, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. So... We actually got you on the show, um, not only because we're interested in what you do, but Gene Ha was on the show a couple weeks ago. and he <laughs> Legendary was ta- Eisner Award-winning creator Gene Ha. That yes, is sir. correct. A creator of uh, Top Ten with uh, Alan Moore and a bunch of other stuff. Contractually obligated to say that whenever his name comes up. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he tried to get us to sign something, and I wouldn't. So right, yeah. uh, I, that probably was it. But May's a great book, too. Yeah, oh, May's amazing. Uh, new issue, by the way, is just out. I think it dropped last Wednesday. So if you, if you heard our interview with Gene Ha, go to your local... Uh, local comic book shop and check that out. He mentioned you and spoke very highly of you and actually put us in contact. And uh, as we are kind of nerds over here, though, I always preface this introduction by saying that I I actually never play role-playing games. I don't know a thing about them. So you have to talk to me like the idiot I am. Ken, welcome to the show. And tell us a little bit about, first of all, how you got into this field and and what it is exactly that you do. Um, What I I think I'll go Second question first. What it is that I do is that I write role-playing games. But, uh, I write a lot of stuff, but role-playing games is sort of the big mountain in the middle of the stuff that I write. And uh, everyone knows what role-playing games are now. Thank you, uh, Generation X and Millennials, for breaking the, the chains and getting it out there. Uh, but uh, I write the games that the, the big books that people set down and ideally ignore during play. I write those. And that can be writing the rules, that can be writing settings, that can be writing campaigns, that can be writing adventures. It's whatever it is that facilitates play at the table. And that's my, for lack of a better term, career. Uh, (laughs) And has been since I made myself completely unfit for civilian employment uh, in the mid-90s by accidentally falling into this gig. And the way that I got into it, and this worked in 1996, and I don't think it works now, and it certainly didn't work then, really. But uh, I had a friend who worked at a different role-playing game company. I'd run Call of Cthulhu, which is a terrific role-playing game, for him back in the 80s in college. And he remembered me when he got a playtest manuscript of a different game from a different company, Chaosium. And they got a a manuscript called Nephilim, which was a translation of a French game that uh, had a lot of very cool things going on and a lot of things that were completely wrong with it. But he said, gosh... It's a game about black magic conspiracies and alien monsters. Who do I know that is that? And he said, oh, my buddy Ken. So he sends me the manuscript, and I write up about 11,000 words of of backsass and send it into Chaosium. And I get an email back from Greg Stafford, the founder of Chaosium, one of the legendary Mount Rushmore figures of the hobby, saying, that was great stuff. Uh, Can we use it? We'll pay you. What's the next book you're writing for us? And, you know, in, in my circles, when Greg Stafford puts his hand down out of, out of the clouds off Mount Olympus and says, you're writing a book for us, you don't say, well, actually, I, I work for an insurance company. I, I don't think that's going <laughs> to. No, you buckle down, you write a secret societies book for Nephilim. And at roughly the same time, uh, me and a couple of other friends had put together a book called uh, a, a Bunch of Alternate Histories because we were all history fans. Uh, two of them were history majors at the University of Chicago. And we'd screw around doing alternate history riffs. And uh, Steve Jackson Games had a list of things we'd like to see, and they had a game uh, called GURPS Time Travel, and one of the things they wanted to see was alternate histories for that book. And so we said, we can write alternate histories better than most people. We put together a proposal, sent it into Steve Jackson, where it uh, uh, dropped without a ripple, 
And, but at uh, because I was in Chicago and Gen Con at that time was in Milwaukee, and because I had a relationship uh, with Chaosium of uh, uh, sort of going up and volunteering to run Call of Cthulhu at, at Gen Con, I could go to Gen Con for like the price of a train ticket. That was my whole cost. So I would show up at Gen Con every year, run stuff for Chaosium, and then because I had a Chaosium badge, Steve Jackson could not ignore me and run away because I was an exhibitor. So I could go to him and say, hey, man, what about that proposal? And I did that literally every year until finally he said, look, let me get this other game out. I promise I will look at your proposal. I will give you an answer, and then you will stop bothering me. But haha, joke was on him. My proposal was great, and his answer was, <laughs> let's publish this. So basically in roughly the same six-month, eight-month period, I had two solid book offers from two uh, major publishers and I started writing it, and eventually it became apparent to my wife first, and then shortly thereafter to me, that I enjoyed writing role-playing games way more than I enjoyed working for an insurance company. And she said, why don't you do that full-time? And I said, because there's no money in it. But that didn't dissuade anyone, and eventually we uh, you know, stumbled onto a way to you know, sort of do it full-time and keep the lights on. And that was mostly by doing a couple of Star Trek games back-to-back, which... Oh, I was going to say, I thought it was robbing banks. Uh, robbing banks yeah. also works, but that's that's one of those... Day job, day jobs. Gotcha. Right. You know, you, you got to have the cover. Um, and, uh, and so basically I have been doing that now for two decades. No sign of stopping. And as I say previously, I literally am unemployable at this point. So I'd better keep doing it. So this makes perfect sense because the, I, we had a conversation with Gene and he started talking about certain scenarios. And I think we I, I made the comment that um, alternative history, particularly like Project Paperclip, Occult, and I said two more words, and then he said, well, you have to talk. Right. Yeah, <laughs> we yeah. said we have to, we have to uh, talk on air. So now it makes perfect sense. Right, yeah. <laughs> Ken, what, you talk about the books, and again, I, I, remember I'm a moron, so you, right. you got to use very small words around me. But what what is it about the book that is so central to the, the role-playing game experience? And also, what exactly is in a book. I mean, when I think of books, I think of things that teachers made me read that I didn't enjoy very much. What's what's different about it for a role-playing game? Well, I mean, in a role-playing game, uh, the book has, uh, well, first of all, you volunteered to read it, so that problem was solved. Uh, but the, uh, but uh, the, the book of a role-playing game, by and large, has two main components. It has the rules, the actual who rolls dice when, how do you know if you stab that guy systems, and it has the world in which you're doing that. And that world can be sort of an assumed world, like Dungeons and Dragons, where we know there's dungeons, we know there's dragons, there's elves. All right, we're done. Or it can be a more uh, fully built out world, like Vampire uh, the Masquerade, where there's a bunch of vampire clans and a bunch of bad guys that are uh, creeping around in the shadows. And there's uh, thousands of years of politics and backstory. And you have to sort of convey that to the player so that they can immerse themselves in that universe. So it's Half of it is technical writing that's here is how the dice work, and half of it is here is what that die roll means in the context of the game. Does it mean you've uh, got a magic ring? Does it mean you've shamed the vampire prince of Cleveland? Does it mean what? And the what is the part that I find more interesting than the how, but for the how you have to at least have a, a relatively solid grounding in you know statistics and, and math and all the other things that we had to do that we didn't want to when we would rather have been talking about vampires and Project Paperclip. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, that's interesting. I was actually going to ask you next, like, what was the more interesting thing? 
it strikes me that this is akin to world building that you would see in fantasy or science fiction or comic books. Uh, and what you're trying to do is create a place where, correct me if I'm wrong, players can come in and experience a world that you've set up. But also I think the trick must be then allowing them to create greater parts of that world for themselves. So when, you know, if I'm writing fiction or I'm writing comic books, for example, I, I kind of know what the beginning and the ending is. I know how the world is contained. I might be working with someone else's world, but I generally know what the start and the end is. Is it difficult for you when you're doing this to kind of have that open-ended feeling in your writing, knowing that you're you're kind of just setting the ground rules in a sense for somebody and that other people are going to build on that and, and that's so critical to their experience. They have to be able not only to enjoy it if they're novice players, but they're, if they're experienced players and they're going to be playing this campaign for a while, they're going to rework and, and change this world and do different things with it. I mean, that's the that's the core thing that makes role-playing games different from other art forms is like you say, the fact that the players are co-building their own experience. If I'm watching a Marvel movie, I may have my own ideas as to how it should end. Doesn't matter. They ended the way they're going to end it. I may think, well, you did Captain America wrong or you did Iron Man wrong, but too bad. But if I'm playing Captain America or I'm playing Iron Man, I get to put that into the game and bring that in and make it a collaborative, a truly collaborative story, a collaborative art form. And that's what I think a lot of role-playing game designers uh, certainly need to keep in mind is that they're not writing novels with math. They're writing sort of big, exciting launch pads for someone else to take their story somewhere else. And that may mean staying within the constraints of the previously established world. And that's some of the fun is, okay, we can't, you know, violate any of the rules of, of, of vampire lore as set out in vampire, or it can be you know, I hate those guys. I'm going to kill them. I'm going to destroy their empire. I'm going to change the world forever. And that's on the players and on the the game master, the storyteller, whoever they happen to be, so that you are co-creating this world. And rather than just have an empty racquetball net to bounce it off of, you've got an exciting, vibrant world that will hit you back if you hit it. And that's the goal, I think, of anyone who's designing a setting is that something more interesting has to be happening than... Look at that, a pile of treasure. Uh, th there has to be at least some guy who doesn't want you to take that pile of treasure. And ideally, that guy should have friends and relatives and patron gods and a secret direwolf and whatever else that will come mess with you if you try and mess with him. And then story happens because you may say, well, that guy sounds dangerous. Let's go beat up his uncle and make him, you know, uh, give us the treasure to get his uncle back. Or you may say... Let's just, you know, go beat, beat up a bunch of little guys, armor up, and then take on his direwolf. And that degree of player decision and player strategy is what makes it more fun than even a, an interactive computer game where, you know, the guys at um, uh, uh, Bungie or whoever, they've written five options at the table. There's an infinity of options. You can literally do anything, and the, the game master has to roll with it. And that's that's the fun. That's what makes it truly collaborative. <laughs> Size Minkowski. Uh, watch out for the potholes. 
Yeah, 32nd is just brutal. How can they leave the street like this in front of a school? The city debt works. I'm pretty sure half the street has fallen into the Copro's basement at this point. Mother I just bought that tire. Wow, that hole's huge. What the hell was that? Katie ran over a pothole. It's fine. Are you sure? I'd probably shoot that car and put it out of his misery. Right. No, it's not a Yugo. Hey, do you, do you guys hear that? Uh, it sounds like it's coming from under your tire. Did you guys hit someone? Quick, we better torch the car now before We're the cops We're not burning kick. anything. Jesus. Help me push the car back. Uh, Kyle? Uh, why is he wearing yeah. a uniform? Why is someone under the street in the first uh, place? How is that even possible? Oh, hey, guys. Oh, those fallen street rocks really hurt my shemp area. Oh. Uh, Jess, what uh, are you guys doing down there? Uh, Kyle's showing me around the underside. There's tunnels running all through Bridgeport. Come on down. Uh, I'm not so good with confined spaces. Ah, yes, your deadly fun allergy. Come on, guys. Leave old man Trekker up there. The door's right in the back of the Copro. Whoa, it's huge down here and super creepy. I don't get it. How is there all this room underneath the streets? Say, Jess, why don't you give them a history lesson? Okay, so all the streets in Bridgeport were raised in the 1850s by 14 feet due to flooding. That left all these tunnels. They go all the way up to Uptown. Yeah, that El Cazone guy used to use them for the bubbles right under the cops' noses. But Kyle, why are you wearing a uniform? Well, Professor Shannington, I'm a dutifully monetized and bonded member of Tristero, the Undertown Postal Society. And these tunnels is how we deliver the messages from the world beyond. You're an underground mailman? You're the least reliable person I know. I am deeply recognizated in that remark, Shannon. I've been delivering the Undertown mail since the 1950s, I'll have you know. While that almost certainly can't be true, Shanna, the most important information is that there's a dead letter office down here. Unclaimed goods. Okay. Brought my knife, ready for inspection. Hey, I can't stand around here all day jibber-jabbering. The man needs delivering. So if you guys want to come along, I only got about a dozen more stops. Whoa, that's a pretty sweet mail cart you have there. Yeah, we put a lot of tires from Bridgeport on these old rail carts. Now, you got to stick close, because it ain't all fun and games down here. What's uh, with the musical cues, Kyle? That's a signal to level up, Jess. You're all gonna need infinite hit points for this job. Please turn off the boombox. Ah, you are not as fun as you claim. All right, kids, we gotta stop by Cheddar's house. He's the guy who gets that giant stack of magazines right there. Gigantic asses? Beautiful burrows? <whistles> Look at the hooves on Donkey Miss April. Yeah, he handles all the beasts of burden. You need them down here. Right, there you go. And the next stop is the gas plant, where we turn all your waste into the beautiful clean fuel that powers under town. Gross. It smells like a sewer. It is a sewer. Waste snot wants snot. That's what we say. Oh, what's the spur coming up? Just grab the lever. What lever? The one on your left. The other left. Oh, no, this is terrible. We're still on the rails. It can't be that bad. No, you don't understand. We're headed into Underports Bridge. Kyle, you just lost boombox privileges for a week. Submit. 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 Is that a squid on the back of their head? Quick, Jess. Grab me my whacking shovel. They've been taken over by the flying cavalon. That's a frying pan, you idiot. Whack them good, Jess. No mercy. There's an ink sack? It's everywhere? Get it in your mouth. The eggs will burrow through your stomach. I'm whacking. I'm whacking. They just keep coming. You will bow before Syoctorax. Leech of the bile. We're going over the falls in the Palmasano. Hang on, guys. Ah! 
my god, that's cold. Where the heck are we? And why do I want sushi? Oh, thank heavens you made it. Physically, perhaps. I, I think I lost three or four sanity points. That's nothing but the life of an undertown mailman, Jess. What do you say we get this cart back up on the rails and I'll give you rides back to the Copro? No! Uh, okay, but you don't have to be rude about it. John Daly and guest host Mario Smith chatted with Andre Vasquez, the newly elected alderman of the 40th Ward. Vasquez talked about how his roots in Chicago's hip-hop community prepared him for hardball politics, how he dealt with the smear campaign, and what he's learned so far as city councilman. Radio Free airs every Tuesday, drive time. We've got one of the newest of 12 aldermen joining us and Lumpen Radio's very own Mario Smith. Welcome, gentlemen. Surprise win. You won by 1,000 votes. Congratulations. You knocked off one of the longest-standing members there. I think he was yep. in for, what, 36, 39 36 years? 36 years. 36 years. Yeah, Chairman he got elected. Community. I was four years old. Okay. Wow. Yep. Nobody gave you a chance. It was a dirty campaign against you as well. Mm-hmm. How did you pull this off? Because it was one of the big surprises of election night. Mario and I were, were calling the election here. We had the election on Lumpen, and we were stunned. How did it happen? Uh, it, honestly, I, I've... Because I was, I was a rapper. Like, mm-hmm. I've always come up with the mindset that you just got to put in the work. So we knew we weren't going to have the money. Like, O'Connor raised about a million and a half. Uh, we knew we didn't have the access to, like, the machine. But what we had was time. And that time was used to actually knock on the doors, have the one-on-one conversations over about three and a half, close to four years. So by the time it got dirty and nasty when it was done the runoff, um, most folks already knew me because they had met me at the doors. So it made it a lot harder for that narrative that he was trying to get past to actually stick. And I think people just want to change across the city. So it, a lot of it was timing. Mm-hmm. You were talking about that narrative. And one of the things that you know was used against you was was lyrics. And, and mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about that, whether you think that was <laughs> fair or not, or um, is one thing which was maybe art uh, taken out of context. I mean, I, so I think it was fair, you know, and I, I think... 20-year-old me probably would not have thought it was fair, right? But I think, I think when we look at hip-hop and other art forms, um, uh, the way I, what I learned through this process is what made me part of the hip-hop culture is feeling not part of a larger community, right? So then you have your own separate community, but there are things within certain communities that exclude other people, right? So some of the language being misogynistic and being homophobic Although I didn't recognize, I didn't make the connection of how harmful it is to other people at the time. Like, I was just battle rapping. Um, Once I really thought about it, it it made sense. So it's completely fair game to say, you know what, that language is probably not the most representative of what we want the future to look like. Um, But I I think it was a little disingenuous how the attack went because what he was doing or what they were doing was taking those quotes – and then pumping it into every door, so 55,000 neighbors in the ward, five times a day for a month. So, like, if you have a problem with the language, dumping it, yeah. mass marketing in those exact quotes to people is probably not the most thoughtful way to go about it. And I think it was just desperation. We, you know, I mentioned we don't talk to politicians a lot on the show. We do talk uh, to musicians, a lot of music in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, musicians often talk about certain moments in Chicago that people are sharing spaces and, and opportunities a lot now. Tell us a little bit about how you started rapping and how you started, uh, you know, your music. Yeah, so I, I mean, I was the kid that was, like, writing poetry and, like, kind of keeping it myself and trying to find ways because I felt inadequate in my own skin. I was trying to find ways to express my inner 
stress and oppression. My parents were immigrants. We grew up broke, right? I, I, as a person of color, I already knew the system that I live in, how that's going to treat me. So I, I had my own anger and angst that I was working through, and that allowed me to just start writing poetry or whatever. And in high school, I started meeting the hip-hop kids, and that was like 93. So at that point, it wasn't mainstream like it is now. So I would liken those hip-hop kids to being like how folks looked at goth kids for a while. Like the, the misfits out of the crew, um, but they accepted me. And little by little, I learned how to freestyle and battle. And I started gaining an identity. So next thing you know, I'm going to Navy Pier, and I'm battling. I'm talking 20 to 50 kids every weekend just to get my name up. And because I was one of the few brown kids that was out there doing it, um, I gained notoriety pretty quickly and I ended up going to New York, going to HBO, MTV, just battling people. Um, thought about touring for a while, but then I realized like it didn't solve my inner problems. I still felt alone just in a crowd. So little by little, I kind of just tried to find different ways to, to evolve and, and somehow just ended up here. Worked a ton of retail, went to school, was still rhyming. Um, and just got to the point where I think when I had kids is when I really started slowing down and looking at things differently. You being humble. I was there for most of that stuff. And I know for a fact it was only like two guys that people did not want to screw with. It was you and the legal counsel for the Golden State Warriors, Mr. Capital D, D. Dave (laughs) Kelly. And it was like whenever there was a battle, just to put it in the context and to paint a picture, in Wicker Park there was subterranean. You had poetry at another level at LitX. You had Beat Parlor right on the corner of Milwaukee and Damon. And you had, I'm sorry, Beat Parlor a little bit further down, Triple X right on the corner of Milwaukee and Damon. And at Triple X is where everybody kind of met up. If you rhymed in Chicago, you, you had to come to Wicker Park. That was just the rule. It, whether you were from the south side, the west side, whatever, anyway. you came to Wicker yeah. Park. So there would be nights at Subterranean where uh, Alderman Prime here <laughs> <laughs> would get up on stage and kill it. And it would be like, okay, so such and such is next. And then it's like, <laughs> where's such and such? You know, and it, it, it was it was a thing thing. But uh, uh, something I've always wanted to ask you, and I didn't get yeah. a chance to ask you when you were on um, – on that show that I do that I can't yeah. uh, can't remember I remember the name of <laughs> you this whole run for Alderman mm-hmm. and then subsequently them trying to bring back your past yep. into this whole idea of you being the Alderman of, of the 40th um, how much of that affected you even though you knew you had the answer to the yeah I did say all those things but that was 20 years ago 30 years ago whatever how did that in retrospect, now that yeah, you've yeah. won and all now that, how did here. that, yeah, now that it's happened, yeah. um, did you take personal offense to any of that stuff? Uh, yeah, I mean, on on the one hand, because I was a battle rapper, right? I I've had people yell in my face, <laughs> I've spit seen in it. my face, I've seen it, tell me they beat me up, tell me they're gonna shoot me, like they had done all those things in in public environments. So I, I did have a thick skin when it came to like debates, when it came to like somebody saying something to my face, I'd be like, all right, I've heard worse but what what really affected me was when the mailers were hitting everybody like i would knock on a door and brace for impact Mm. not knowing what somebody else might think of me as a person not knowing me like directly right the other thing that was that was really so it was that feeling of like your world caving in because because the system we live in tries to find the thing that you're most ashamed of and they're like we're just going to exploit that and break you right Uh, what what also was really angering to me and you know I've, I've worked through it was 
like my family, my kids, my parents live in the ward. So they were all getting the mailers. Mm. Like I know my dad cried literally seeing the stuff. Mm. So I had to make sure that I was basically navigating as best as possible. Like I couldn't let anybody see that. I needed to make sure that I was publicly doing what I needed to do. And I had to go back and go, look, if I want to get even, you just win, right? You just got to win because then at that point, people live with the fact they couldn't win. And real quick, did you have a chance to talk to uh, the former alderman after the fact? No. So, like, last time I talked to him was the last debate that we had on Chicago tonight. So no concession when we won. No help at all with transition. There's no transition at all. We reached out and we didn't have any um, conversation. So we had done our due diligence to try to, you know, because – you imagine the neighbors have all these issues that are up in the air. Right. Let's get the information to help. So, no. But we, we've kind of we've transitioned from the ground up ourselves, and I'm pretty proud of what the team's been doing. So you were talking about that lit, which we've all seen, uh, or most of us have seen negative lit. It gets, it gets pretty awful. I mean, uh, almost laughable at times, but this is very serious, and personally, you obviously – um, you stayed positive though and stayed on the doors. So did you, turn yeah. it, did you turn it up from there or did you just stay stay on? No. So the, so the way we looked at it when we started was we have to just draw the contrast and say, look, thirty six years in the council hasn't caused a lot of change. Is you know Alderman Burke's vice chair right? Tying it into that to make the distinction. Once we saw it, and we knew the mayors were going to be the attack. We knew once I started running, the rapper thing was going to come up. So once we started seeing it. Internally, we were like, let's just chill. Like, let's just talk about what we bring. And I, I'm, we were like, we're willing to bet they're going to overplay that hand. And they're going to do it so hardcore that people get fed up with that in general because it reminds them of, like, the Chicago dirty machine politics. And it did. I think ultimately it turned people off. So you were, ta- you were telling us about uh, the, the kind of moment where you were rapping and then – what happened to kind of cross over and uh, or is it one or the other? Did you immediately get engaged or involved in politics or, or did they coincide? Um, I think, you know, it was, so I was touring for a while. And like I said, I realized that like there, ain't, there isn't a 401k, <laughs> uh, right? I mean, you know, as musicians, right? Yeah. That, that's not that my parents came from another country hoping their kid established himself. And here I am like trying to rap and getting my name up. But like the income isn't there and everything else. So, so things weren't just falling into place. And I started working retail, selling phones at a mall, then became like a store manager, became an area manager for state of Illinois, met my wife, we have kids. And at that point I'm looking at it going, all right, I, I, it's clear that my life is starting a new chapter. My kids are going to be here and I'm not. At some point my time's going to be up. So what am I doing to make sure that I leave them the best possible foundation? So during that time, Bernie starts running for president. My wife and I, my wife was actually more hardcore than I was at that time. Mm-hmm. And we started having the conversation. So I started, I got a chance to meet him. I'm sharing the stuff on Facebook. Like I would share like albums. Mm-hmm. And somebody who, whose brother was Alderman, Carlos Rosa, introduced me to her brother and a Bernie. And I was like, I got a picture with the guy. All right, I guess we got to get this guy elected so I could have the picture up on the mantle and tell the kids. And that led to me throwing a fundraiser and then literally just roller coaster that led to me here like three, four years later. Yeah. And, of course, we've, we've had a, what's been called really a democratic socialist sweep here in Chicago. Yep. What makes you – I guess what was your aim in the 40th Ward and how does being a democratic socialist 
kind of help you accomplish that and see things in a different way. Sure. Yeah. So, so I think what happens is people like to categorize everything, right? So the way, if you look at the 80s, somebody would identify as a liberal and that was like hardcore, like they're fighting against the system and now it's progressive. So, so the terms aren't necessarily as like important, but I think the values are. So when I identify as a democratic socialist, what I'm saying is we need more democracy in the system and we need to make sure that we eliminate the amount of money that influences our politics. These large corporations buy their city, their, their elected officials, they run our government, and what we need to do is change that dynamic so that we can tax these large companies and the 1% that need to pay their fair share so that the rest of society has their needs met. The Aventists tore the roof of Studio A with a searing John Daly session. From their new EP, Terrasoma, this is Violence, engineered by Ari Shellist and Todd Carter.
He's sounding a little worse for wear. Um, yes, I, I just come from a very important meeting that uh, was rather, rather upsetting, um, having to do with uh, some extended family. Hmm. They seem to be just fine. Well, which is which is very upsetting to me. Well, that is an understand. I believe that is a um, a, a mood, as the kids say, or same. Same, I believe, is what the kids say as well. I to think that. I think the kids, I think the the kids at this point would make a would make a Minecraft reference. <clears throat> well, I myself am feeling uh, not quite down, but also uh, a little a little peculiar. Fortnite, um, dance me about it, DF. I I would I would love to, um, in, but but I I simply I don't have the dexterity for it. Regardless, no, no. So I've. I, I routinely go through my computer, looking through the files, trying to clear up space, you know, um, as defrag, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and recently I was going through my downloads folder and I saw something very peculiar, um, which is something that I didn't remember downloading. And to be fair, was it virus.jpg? No, it, 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 I, I, I'm even when, even in the depths of blackout drunkenness that I often find myself find myself in I have the ability to know when something is a virus something looks sketchy oh, you've never tried the virus.jpg challenge I I can't say I have I'm not that young um I I I can't, was too old for these so-called for the challenges. challenges for the, <laughs> for the trials um <laughs> to win the cup <laughs> but um no, I found something really strange, uh, which is it was a it's a 344 megabyte .zip file titled Abyss Boat, in all capital letters, mm. um, and it's just it's been just been sitting there because I don't um, I should just delete it and move on with my life. But at the same time, yeah. what what does it mean? A mysterious zip, a, a mysterious zip in anybody's downloads is 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 you know I believe it's it's the theme of some Edgar Allan Poe. Novel. Well, I mean, how it no, drives you to insanity. It, it does. It does actually because it's one. It's three hundred forty-four megabytes. That's that's huge for a zip file. Yeah. What what is it? What is it? And then I open it up to try and get a better look, like you know, because you can open it up without actually yeah. extracting it. And it's a dot exe. So I'm. What is the dot exe called? Abyss boat. All capital letters. There's no readme dot text. Nope. Nope. Mm. Um, and so. The strange, so it it's just there. It's just there, and I'm sure. just uh, I, I'm I want to click it, and I want to open it, and I want to know. But I know the rational part of me should be th- should throw it away, get rid of it. Mm. Um, and I'm just stuck. This is this is right now the most um distressing thing in my life. No. Uh, far far outstripping work, far outstripping um uh you know social cues. Sure. Far it's everything. This is driving me. This is giving me a lot of issues right now. So DF, as somebody that's graduated with one semester of electrical engineering from Columbia University, uh, and I mean obviously that for those of you that don't know, that makes me a, an expert on this such field. Um, I would recommend you go into uh, your program files. Yeah. And there's one file I want you to delete. It's very important. Mm -hmm. I need you. This is going to clear up everything. Yeah. Delete 
Windows.xp. Hard rocking Brit poppers Space Bones pulled into Studio A for a John Daly session. Recorded by Ari Shellist, this is Monsoon.
Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shannon Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.